Today's scripture comes from 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 to 49. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of salt? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with the great riches and will give him his daughter and make him his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. 
And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear." For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father, Uh, We thank you for your word. We know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so, Father, would you feed us this morning by your word as we are instructed, challenged, encouraged by you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is John. I'm on the team here. I want to start by thanking or apologizing to Carmel uh, for asking her to read the scripture today, apologizing to you for making you stand for so long. I know it's uh, hard to do, Um, but I thought it was important that we heard the whole story. We heard the whole story. We gave it room to breathe this morning so that we can re-familiarize ourselves with this overly familiar story. Refamiliarize ourselves with this overly familiar story. Today, as you heard, we are talking about David and Goliath. David versus Goliath. It's a fan favorite. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone in the room knows this story, but I think it would be a good guess that we do. Lots of people know this story. And the reason is, it's because it's one of the greatest stories, right? It's one of the best stories. It's one of the most popular stories in, in culture. Few stories are more memorable, few stories are more exciting and compelling. David and Goliath, it would be fair to say, is not just a story, it's an archetypical story, an archetypical story. And what I mean by archetypical is that it seems to capture something of the universal human experience, something not only about the realities of 
human experience, but also of the hopes of human experience. You know, it's, it's the story of the big bad guy versus the little good guy in the hope that the little good guy is going to win. It's the fight against all odds in the hope of beating those odds. It is the original underdog story from which all the sports films are made. And it permeates our popular culture. And it's popular because we can all relate in some sense to facing giants of some description, right? And we all have this hope, I think, that we might indeed defeat those giants. Maybe that's something that you feel like you're experiencing right now. In the, in the trivial end of the spectrum, it's your sports team. It's facing the league leaders next week. On the more serious side, it's the dispute that you're in, the conflict that you're in. Or maybe the abstracted giant of a diagnosis or something like that. This is a deeply, deeply human story. So human, in fact, that it seems to transcend culture, transcend time, and dare I say it, transcend religion. You know, the secular world loves this story as much as we do here in the church. And the reason for this is that the story of David and Goliath has been and seemingly therefore can be told with no uniquely Christian elements to it. A few years ago, I read Malcolm Gladwell's book. Has anyone read that book? Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, right? I like Malcolm Gladwell. I think he's an interesting thinker. And he uses the story of David and Goliath to explain why underdogs win. And in true Gladwellian fashion, he provocatively says, everything I thought I knew about the story turned out to be wrong, which is a great way to sell a book. The premise of the book is that David's so-called weakness is actually his strength, and he appears to be an underdog, but actually the technology of his weaponry is far superior to that of Goliath's, and therefore he's not indeed an underdog. Very interesting. It's an interesting book, but the point is this. The story can be and has been told compellingly without any uniquely Christian references. Here's what I want to argue this morning. That misses it. I want to argue that we will miss the entire point of this story if we empty it of its uniquely Christian content. And I want to argue that this is a story not simply about life, but about the life of faith. Not simply a human story about life, but of the life of faith. And it's only when we see this as a story of a life of faith that we see the true meaning, the true depth of this story. And that's why we're talking about it today. For those of you that know, we started last week a series, a new summer series called Living by Faith, Living by Faith, where each week we're going to be looking at different faith-filled characters and moments in the Bible. And we're going to be asking ourselves the question, what can we learn from them about the life of faith that we are called to lead? What can we learn from them about this life of faith that we are called to lead. And so that's what we're doing this morning, and that's why we're looking at David and Goliath. But here's what I want to do. I want to propose three alternative titles to the story. Three alternative titles to David and Goliath. David versus Goliath. That I think is going to help us bring focus on the true meaning and depth of this story. And so that's what I want to do. Three 
alternative titles to David and Goliath, David versus Goliath. And I'm going to annoy the note takers this morning, and I'm not going to give you all of them at the front. So just annoyed you by making you stand too long, and now uh, I'm going to win you back. Okay, three alternative titles. Number one, today we're not talking about David versus Goliath. We're talking about David versus Saul. David versus Saul. One of the uh, dynamics in this story is one of contrast. It's one of contrast. If you are a visual person like me, this story is an illustrator's dream, isn't it? A small, brave, light hero and this over-imposing, shadowy figure of the giant. And what we're meant to see as we read the story is a stark contrast between the shepherd boy and the warrior giant. We know this, don't we? That's why it's become so metaphorically powerful in popular culture. But I want to suggest that that's not the predominant contrast that we are supposed to see. It's not the predominant contrast that the author of 1 Samuel is hoping that we will see. The true contrast in the story is not between David and Goliath. It's between David and Saul. A little context is going to help prove my point here. Let's look briefly at the story of Saul. We have to go back a few chapters in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, the broad picture of what's happening in the people of God, the people of Israel, is that the people of Israel demand to have a king. They demand to have a king. And and what's surprising about that is that they are supposed to be a people who are ruled by God. That's what sets them apart from every other nation around them. They are ruled not by kings, but by God. But Israel, they wanted to be like every other nation. They, They wanted to be like the world. And this is essentially Israel's rejection of God's rule and reign. Israel's rejection of God's rule and reign. And God warns them. He says, look, if you do this, it's going to go badly for you. And then in verse 19, it says this, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Samuel was the the priest through whom God ruled Israel. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Remember that. And so God allows this and he sends Samuel to find a king. And then in chapter 10, we're introduced to Saul and Saul is anointed as king. And, and he's, he's going to be brought out before the people. He's going to be announced like, you wanted a king. This is the king that, that we have found for you. He's going to be announced in front of the people. There's a big reveal party. And then in verse 21, it says, but when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. So Saul is made king. 
And then the subsequent chapters, what we see is a summary of his introduction to being king, and it makes for a pretty bleak reading. He's disobedient, he's foolish, he's cowardly, and ultimately it leads to God rejecting Saul. And then in chapter 13, it says this, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because he has not kept, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here's what we're supposed to see. In all of this big narrative, Israel wanted a king who would go out before them and fight their battles. They wanted to be like every other nation around them. And so therefore, they're going to pick a king who, what was, he, what was the description of Saul? He is physically imposing. He is head and shoulders above the rest. And, but the moments for kingliness, the moments for Saul to act as the king he ought to be, he fails. The moments for obedience, he's disobedient. In moments for wisdom, he's foolish. In moments for faith, he is fearful. He has all the external qualities of a king. That's why he's been chosen. He has all the external qualities of a king like the other nations, but he has none of the character of a king. None of the character of a good king. Here's the irony. The big irony of this story is that the people of Israel wanted a king like every other nation, and that's exactly what they got. The story of Saul is a lesson in itself for us. The story of Saul is a lesson for us that we, if we as a church desire or even demand to be like the world, we will be like the world. If we will not be led by a holy God, we will be led by sinful men and women. If we place our hope in what the world places its hope in, we will join the world in their perpetual disappointment and hopelessness. That's what Israel did. They rejected God. They wanted to be like the world. And it's a lesson for us. The story of Saul is not the story of the faith of a man. It's of placing our faith in men. It's of placing our faith, our trust in the kings and the rulers and the leaders and the politicians and the movements and the ideologies and their strengths and their powers and their mights instead of placing our faith and hope and trust in the living God. That's Saul. That's the context of the Goliath event. And then the author of 1 Samuel, he's going to introduce another character, and this character is David. And, and what you'll see when you read 1 Samuel is that the author is intentionally paralleling these stories. Paralleling, is that a word? He's making a parallel between the two characters, between Saul and between David. He is intentionally contrasting these two would-be kings. God is going to seek out someone not who the people want because what the people want is a king like all the other nations. He's going to seek out who he wants. He's going to seek out someone who is after his own heart. And when he decides to pick David, he 
intentionally, it says this in chapter 16, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature. Don't look at those things because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Saul, who is head and shoulders above the rest, his defining attribute is that he's tall. (laughs) Is contrasted with David, who is the youngest and smallest and weakest of eight brothers. You know the story? Goes down the line. It's the final smallest one. Because David... Uh, Because God is looking for something different. He's looking for something different. He sees the world differently to how the world sees the world. And let me just say, it's the same today as it was back then. God is looking for men and women after his own heart. Doesn't matter if you're tall. Doesn't matter any of those other attributes. God is looking for men and women after his own heart. So the contrast is made between Saul and David. And the story of Goliath, the Goliath event, is the moment where the difference between David and Saul is most pronounced. It's most pronounced. Think about it. The, the, the scene that we have, the scene that we've had read is that there is a battle. The battle lines are drawn from one side of the valley to the other side of the valley. And the way that this war is going to work is that there is going to be a representative, a champion who is going to stand out from among the people and represent the nation. So the fight between these two men will determine the fight between the nations. That's the way that this is going to work. And, and what we heard is that no one wants to fight the Philistine champion. No one wants to fight Goliath. Why? Because he's head and shoulders above the rest. He's head and shoulders above the rest. And what we're meant to hear ringing in our ears is Israel's request. We want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. But when Saul hears the war cry of the giant, what does he do? He doesn't stand out from among the people. He is found in among his people. In verse 11, it says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul is supposed to be set apart from his people. He's supposed to step forward, but he steps back and he is found in among his people. He is found with the same response as everyone else in Israel. David, in contrast, is told by his brothers to step back, but he steps out. He steps forward. The Goliath event is supposed to contrast David and Saul stepping up and stepping back. Faith and fear, courage and cowardice. Courage is the willingness to do what is right even when it's hard. Cowardice is the unwillingness to do what is right because it's hard. That's the difference. That's the difference. And the challenge for us as we read this should be, I think, are we more like Saul Or are we more like David? Are we more like Saul or are we more like David? Are we willing to be courageous for our faith?
Are we willing to stand for what is right even when it's hard? Are we willing to stand for what is right even at great personal risk and maybe even great personal cost? I would argue that courage is as needed today as ever before as a Christian. Courage to stand for what is right. Courage to fight for the good. To hold where others flee. And to step up where others step back. The question that is provoked from that is how? Because that sounds pretty hard, doesn't it? <laughs> sounds hard. All of the, the thoughts that went through your head that, that were invoked by me saying courage there, I'm, I'm assuming you're applying them to a situation in your life where you're thinking, I, I want to show courage. I don't want to be a coward. And the question is how? How can you do that? How can we be more like David than Saul? How can we find the courage? Well, I think the answer is found in the true contrast between Saul and David. The true fundamental contrast between Saul and David is faith. It's faith. It's the difference between faith and faithlessness. Let me show you what I mean by my second alternative title. First alternative title, David versus Saul. Second, Goliath versus God. Goliath versus God. As I've read and reread and reread this story, there's something that stands out to me, and it stands out to me um, in a fresh way, actually, as I read it. And the thing was that the, the difference in perspective that David has than everyone else in the story. David seems to see the Goliath situation very differently to everyone else from, from his brothers from Saul and Goliath, in all of the dialogues that we read, there is a difference in perspective between David and everyone else. And the reason David sees things differently is that he sees things through the eyes of faith. He sees things through the eyes of faith. One scholar puts it like this, the others are cowards because they have abandoned their only source of courage. David's very different perception of the battle is theologically rooted, is theologically rooted. David's courage is sourced, is rooted in his faith in God. The difference between David and everyone else in the story of David and Goliath is his theology. By theology, I mean how we think about God, how we see God. And Christ City, I just want to say this, let's not downplay the importance of good theology among us. Let's not downplay the importance of good theology among us, good and right thinking about who God is. Faith, I would argue, is simply a, our active response to our theology. It's our, it's our lived response to how we see God, how we view God. Faith is applied theology, theology applied in our lives. As we heard last week, Sam described faith like this. He said, faith is trusting God, obeying him, and living with confidence that he will keep his promises. 
You see that? Trusting God. Trusting God is, there needs to be a theology there. There needs to be a right understanding of who God is so that we can live in active response to God. Therefore, to live by faith is to live, as David did, with an awareness of your present participation in God's eternal plans and purposes. Let me say that again. To live by faith is to live with an awareness, being cognizant of your present participation in God's eternal plans and purposes. Is theology applied. Applied theology. You know, it's not only that. When, when you live in obedience to God, let me just say this. When we, when we live in obedience to God, when we live by faith, we can know that God is presently, actively working in and through our lives. Have you thought about that? That's how David saw things. Even with the animals, he saw things as God, as he was obedient to God, God was presently, actively working in and through his life. It's not just that we, theology is not just that we are aware of what God is doing, it's that we start to participate in what God is doing. We start to get involved in what God is doing in the world here, now, today in Vancouver. And that is going to change how we view everything. That's going to change our perspective. It's going to change your perspective of the situation that you find yourself in where there's a need for courage. Faith changed David's perspective of the fight. It changed how he saw the situation. It changed how he saw the Goliath event. Let me suggest a few ways that it changes how we, how we see things. Faith, seeing God rightly, actively living in response to our theology. The first thing faith helps us see is it helps us see the enemy really clearly. It helps us see the enemy clearly. Look how David sees Goliath. Everyone else is terrified. David says this, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? By the way, that's a classic ancient Near East put down. Uncircumcised Philistine, I don't suggest you use it. Here's the point. The point is this. Everyone else sees a giant versus a boy. David, he sees a giant versus God. Everyone else sees the giant versus the boy. They're all questioning David. David sees a giant versus God, the living God. David sees the fight between Goliath, who is just a mere representative of the idols and the false gods of the Philistines. And, and, and he sees Goliath versus the living God, Yahweh. You know, one of the problems of the Israelites wanting a king like the other nations. This is one of the problems that in wanting a king like the other nations, essentially placing their faith in, in a man, is that they became increasingly susceptible to the fear of man. That's what happens. When we place our faith in the strength of people or governments or movements instead of the living God, we become increasingly susceptible to the fear of people and governments and movements. That's what happens. Christ said, let me encourage you, God's enemies become very small when we recognize them as God's enemies. 
as God's enemies. Giants become very small in the shadow of the living God. Any fear that we face, any fear that we have in the face of opposition is swallowed up by faith. Look at how Paul speaks. The Apostle Paul, he says this. This is glorious. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Faith, Christ city. Seeing God clearly helps us see the weakness of the enemy in contrast to the glory and strength and majesty of our God. Second, faith helps us see ourselves clearly. When you read the story of the Goliath event, it's interesting consider, to consider how David sees himself. How does David see himself? It's funny because David seems to live with this blissful ignorance that he might lose the fight. <laughs> blissful ignorance of his inability to win this fight, despite everyone saying that he's too young, he's too weak, he's too small. David just seems really confident. We might be uh, tempted to think that David just has a really high view of himself, his own abilities, but I don't think that's it. Faith, this orientation that we have towards God, as we respond to seeing God rightly, it naturally cultivates in us a true humility. A true humility. Humility, as the author C.S. Lewis puts it, it says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. David didn't think less of his gifts and his talents. He knew exactly what he was capable of doing. He gave examples of what he had done before. He didn't think of himself, he didn't think less of himself, he just seemed to be thinking of himself less than everyone else in the scene. His concern, David's main concern, if you read it, is for the honor of God's name. So much so that he is willing to put his life in jeopardy. So much so that he is willing to lose his life. Saul and all the others are more concerned for their own lives. They're thinking of themselves too much. So much so that they are willing for God's name to be blasphemed. That's the difference. David saw himself clearly in light of a holy God, which meant he thought of himself a lot less and thought of God a lot more. Faith helps us see ourselves clearly. Some of us, I, I want to challenge some of us, we have a very low view of what God can do through us. We've got a very low view of what God can do through us because we focus more on ourselves than the living God. 
turn your eyes from yourself to the living God. The Christian message is not that we are strong enough or talented enough. Thank God. It's that God can work powerfully through our weakness. God can work powerfully through the youngest of eight sons. God can work powerfully through this youth. God can work powerfully through this young man. God can work powerfully through you, despite yourself. Faith helps us see ourselves clearly. Lastly, this is an important one to say, faith helps us to be sure which side of the valley we're on. Helps us to be sure which side of the valley we're on. Now, I want to say this with appropriate caution, but before we start talking about slaying the Goliaths in our life, it would be um, important to make sure that we're not the ones opposing God. Some of us in the room, we're not like Saul in the situation we're in. We're more like Goliath. There are times in our life where we feel opposition and we think to ourselves, oh, that's Goliath. Let's be like David. That opposition that can sometimes be God because you're on the wrong side of the valley. Legitimate question to ask ourselves when we're in conflict or when we face opposition is to ask ourselves, are we standing on the right side of the valley? Are we standing in the name of the living God or in defiance against the living God? What a question. Are you Goliath? You know, the only way to know the answer to this question is to ask yourself the question, are you living by faith? Are you living by faith? To ask yourself, am I trusting God? Am I obeying God? Am I living with this confidence that he will keep his promises? Am I following Jesus? Because if you're not, in whatever conflict you're in, you might be on the wrong side of the valley. It's just like a sort of caveat that I have to give. Okay, last one. First alternative title, David versus Saul. Second, Goliath versus God. Lastly, David versus Jesus. David versus Jesus. The story of David is, is great. Hopefully what we've seen that, that, is that it provides for us a, a model of a life of faith. And I think it does. I think it's appropriate to look at the story of David and see it as a model of a life of faith. But the, the problem with it sometimes is that it can be a little bit discouraging, especially when I say things like, are you more like Saul? Or indeed, are you more like Goliath? We can hear be more like David and we truly feel more like Saul. We truly feel more like Goliath. Truth is, you probably are. There's lots of instances, I'm sure, I know this in my own life, where I have not been, not showed courageous faith. Moments where I should have stepped forward and I stood back. When I stood, should have stood up for what is right, I was too cowardly to say anything. Lots of moments. You know what? David is the best of us. David is the best of us. David is the best a sinful human king could offer in response to Israel's desire to be ruled by a sinful human king instead of being ruled by God. In fact, David, if you read on in the story, he becomes the standard by which every other ruling king is measured. 
And every other king seems to sort of fail and not measure up. And guess what? Neither do we. Neither do your leaders. You know, it's interesting. When we take a step back and we examine the life of David, in some sense, even David didn't measure up. Even David looks a little bit more like Saul than he does David. Even David is not David enough. David was the best a sinful human king could be, but he was still a sinful human king. Like Saul, he had moments of cowardice. Like Saul, he was disobedient when he should have been obedient. Like Saul, he had moments of faithlessness. Here's the point. David isn't supposed to serve as simply a model to follow, but he's a signpost to follow. He's not just a model to follow, he's a signpost to follow. He's not, we're not supposed to read the story of David like a, a painting. We're supposed to see the story of David like a window that we look through to see something greater. Let me explain what I mean by this. Big story. 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 5 is the story of the rise of David. From shepherd boy to the shepherd of Israel. From his private inauguration as king, his private anointing as king to his public anointing as king. And then in 2 Samuel 7, after the rise of David, after David has been established as the king, after God's own heart, God says through the prophet Nathan, he's going to make a covenant with David. This covenant is called the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And God says this, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Your throne will be established forever. Now, in some sense, God is speaking through through Nathan about Solomon, his son. But we're also supposed to hear, and we know now in light of Christ, that there is a promise of a king from David's line who will rule and reign forever. One scholar puts it like this, out of this oracle, out of what I've just read, there emerges the hope held by Israel in every season that there is a coming David who will right wrong and establish and establish a good governance. Christ City, back when Israel demanded a king, God knew that all earthly kings would fail them. God warned them that all earthly kings would fail them. Even David, even David, all sinful men would let them down. He knows that if we place our faith in anyone or anything other than him, it will lead to disaster. God knows this. And David wasn't the final answer. He was the start He was the beginning of God's response to a rebellious people. He was the beginning of a drawing back to himself, a wayward people. And it's to this hope, this hope of a coming David, that 2,000 years ago, an angel spoke to a young woman called Mary and said this, Behold, 
You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. See, the story of David is not a painting to simply look at. It's a window to look through to see Jesus, to see Jesus. Christ said, if we read the story of David and Goliath and we don't eventually get to Jesus, we don't eventually see Jesus, then we've missed it. We've emptied it. As I said at the start, we will miss the entire point of this story if we empty it of its uniquely Christian content. Malcolm Gladwell's book is a good book. He misses it. He misses it. The story isn't simply about David. It's about God calling his people back to worship him. God's final response is his coming in the person of Jesus to live the ultimate, the final faith-filled life of total obedience to the Father. This is Jesus, the one that we worship, the one that we sing about, the one that we celebrate in communion. The one who goes out before us as a representative champion and fights our battles for us. The one whose death defeated once and for all all of the enemies of God, Satan, sin, and death itself. The one who has come to rule and reign forever and Christ city reigns today and will reign forevermore. This story is about Jesus. Would you stand as we respond? Mm-hmm.